A written transcript of this episode is provided by Starburst. For more information, you can see the show notes. Welcome to Data Mesh Radio with your host, Scott Herlman, sponsored by Starburst. This is Adrian Estala, VP of Data Mesh Consulting Services at Starburst and host of Data Mesh TV. Starburst is the leading sponsor for Trino, the open source project, and Jamak's Data Mesh book, delivering data-driven value at scale. To claim your free book, head over to starburst.io. Data Mesh Radio is provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It is produced and hosted by me, Scott Hurlman. I started this podcast as a place for practitioners to get useful information about Data Mesh, and we're at over 200 episodes. I've now left Data Stacks, you know, thanks for all their help in founding things, but I've left to start Data Mesh Understanding, which is also helping practitioners to get to the information needed to do Data Mesh well. We have free implementer introductions and roundtable programs, in addition to the more advanced yet affordable offerings. So please do get in touch if you're looking for more information on how to do, how to approach Data Mesh. Just check datameshunderstanding.com for more info. There's also a helpful organization of past Data Mesh radio episodes there if you want to dig into specific topics rather than digging through 200 different episodes. So with that, let's hit the funky intro music and listen to what you'll hear about in this interview episode. Bottom line up front, what are you going to hear about and learn about in today's episode? I interviewed Joao Rosa, principal consultant at Xibia. We discussed domain-driven design for data, the importance of intentionality in preventing chaos, being effective instead of efficient, and the concept of a hyper-object. To start at the end, Joao talked about the need to embrace complexity when dealing with software. We need to treat the data and analytics as a software process. If we try to abstract away the complexity, we lose the nuance, and that nuance is what can make all the difference in terms of the value of your data. Software is not like manufacturing, where complexity is very costly. Embracing complexity was something Andrew Harmel Law and Danilo Sato mentioned in their episode, as did Lorenzo Nicora in his episode on domain-driven design for data. This was a pretty broad-ranging conversation starting with domain-driven design, or DDD, for data. Joao believes we should apply the principles of DDD to everything controlled by software. And when thinking of data as a product, data is definitely controlled by software. One of the big challenges with bringing something like DDD to data is that there aren't tools. And most challenges in the data space have historically been addressed with a tool-first approach. There is a desire to move quickly and just solve challenges, but it's not possible to do that with DDD in Joao's view. A very interesting point of view Joao has in is developing software is a learning process and working software is a consequence of that learning. I think that's a pretty deep thought 
I don't know uh, if a lot of people want to kind of get into that philosophical point, but I, I, I think it's interesting to think about it that way. With the move to cloud and the easy consumption of new tools, creating data has become very easy. But Joao believes that in an enterprise, there needs to be very clear boundaries and contracts between domains to prevent overlap and confusion and chaos. The conversations between teams are hard because all of those conversations are context dependent. You can't kind of automate away a lot of those conversations. Even at the software level, your interface to your data products is a form of communication. Joao brought up the manufacturing-oriented philosophy of software development and why it causes so many challenges. It is very much about efficiency and lean development. That works well when you are producing physical goods, but he doesn't think it does for software. Small incremental changes to software are not costly in a CI/CD world, but the creation initially of data and software is expensive. So we need to move away from that manufacturing approach about being so afraid and, and trying to get everything nailed down ahead of time. But that would mean management releasing more control which many are not willing to do. For Joao, there's also a major value to discovery about what you've already deployed. How are people using it? What is the market slash consumer base telling us? But in general, we spend far too much time focused on new features and not discovering new things about what is already in production. And those small incremental improvements are often the things that generate real value. And if the investment is small to generate those changes that generate good returns, those small changes are a significant point of potential value leverage. Joao brought up Kent Beck, who said, once software arrives to production, it changes itself. Measuring the way that people are actually using software so you can change it, that feedback is really, really crucial. Data mesh, if done well, can really set up organizations to succeed because it can make people effective rather than efficient. We create data products that are easy to use but have unexpected consumption. So the goal of you need to create this data product with these exact features is the efficiency, but you want to be effective. You want to create something that can be used in unexpected way. People can discover new things we lower the friction to those new, useful, potentially very valuable insights. Efficiency is doing the task at hand with little waste, but is that effective in creating business value? Joao doesn't think so, and neither do I. Intentionality is a key theme for Joao in this talk and in general. If you have autonomy without direction, it can create chaos. In her episode, Jessatron or Jessica Kerr, Mention the need for agency instead of autonomy. Autonomy is you figure it out. Joao quoted Jessatron as saying, you provide me the direction, but not the path. We should also be constantly assessing what we are trying to accomplish, and are we actually headed in that direction? What is the business problem you are trying to solve? That question comes up in about 25 to 30% of these conversations, these interviews. And it's funny how difficult that is to stay on topic rather than 
people wanting to play with technology and go kind of off of the business problem. But at the end of the day, we're trying to solve business problems. When about 80% of our time is spent trying to code and only 20% uh, is spent on setting our intentions, what is the outcome? Joao believes if we flip that and focus much more on what we are trying to achieve, solidifying the communication and the understanding before going and coding, that would have a far better outcome. Right now, Joao believes that data is where DevOps was about five years ago. We still, as an industry, need to build the body of knowledge on how to do this right. The DevOps engineer title is starting to fade, and we are calling them by what they are, platform engineers. But as with DevOps, we need to start to look at the long-term payoff of building a platform. Not all organizations should build a platform. This is one thing I talk about a lot of when people are looking at data mesh. Not everybody needs to build out the full platform and all of those things. If you're a large organization, you definitely need to do it. But that's a key part of data mesh. So if you're not building out the platform, you're probably not doing actually data mesh. And that's fine. If you don't need it, don't do it. (laughs) Joao brought up the need to think about the long-term viability of all data initiatives, not just the platform. Data products must be sustainable, which is why so many guests have recommended starting with source-aligned data products. Lorenzo Nicora does a great job of explaining why in his episode. It's, It's kind of a long explanation, but he does a phenomenal job there. One of Joao's clients is leasing large industrial equipment and has switched to proactive maintenance instead of waiting for things to break and fixing them then. This has created a more reliable service for customers and lowered maintenance-related downtime costs. How can we apply similar thinking to data? Joao brought up a hyper object, and that's an object that spans time and space. Joao sees data as a hyper object, but we typically think of data as a snapshot in time. How do we store data today to answer the questions of tomorrow? And how do we apply intentionality to data so we we stop storing data for the sake of storing it? This philosophy better enables us to think of data as a product and reason about the evolution of a data product. If I were to sum up Joao's thoughts, it would be to focus more on intentionality. Why are we doing something and and is it working? Embracing complexity and looking to solve more through conversation instead of tooling. Before you jump in, there are some audio issues in this episode. Uh, Joao's microphone had some issues and so there are popping noises and they get kind of progressively more throughout the episode. So um, I just want to warn people ahead of time. Okay, enough of just me. Let's hear from our awesome guest in this interview episode.
right. Very excited for today's episode. I have Joao Rosa here, who's the principal consultant at Xiebia. Uh, uh, I think I, I mispronounced Shebia as well as your first name. So if you want to, to, to do that in your intro, that'll be great. Um, we've got a lot of things that we were looking at, at covering today. Um, domain-driven design, you know, kind of uh, your idea around what is a hyper object and kind of how that's very, very relevant to data mesh and kind of just in general, how do we think about actually having socio-technical systems and patterns, you know, within data so many things have been people trying to solve them specifically with tools instead of systems and patterns and and things like that, that so many of the approaches historically have been, let's try and solve it with tools that hasn't worked very well. (laughs) So (laughs) how do we get past that? Um, Just a lot of of really kind of interesting things that we're going to dig into here. Um, but before we jump into that, I think it would be really, really great for uh, the audience to get a little bit of information about yourself. So if you don't mind, could you give people an introduction and then we can kind of jump into some of the topics at hand? Definitely, definitely. And thanks, Scott, uh, for the intro. And uh, yes, my name is João. Portuguese name, very hard to pronounce. So uh, it's okay. <laughs> uh, because I'm, I'm an expat, uh, 80 years living abroad from Portugal, so... Uh, it's it's colorful to meet other people and see how my name uh, get transformed. Let's talk like that. <laughs> so very quickly, a, a bit about me. So I, I'm a principal consultant in a company called Xivia. Uh, started in the Netherlands, but now we have a worldwide presence. And I do mainly two things. One, I act as interim CTO for uh, scale-ups. Uh, uh, and the other thing, I'm strategic advisor for bigger companies, enterprises. When they want to change their operating models or uh, they want to to embrace digital capabilities. Um, I also have my own podcast. Um, uh, I'm curator of a book, um, uh, the um, Visual Collaboration Tools. And I'm also uh, in May releasing a a chapter of a book with O'Reilly. So uh, I like this (laughs) lifestyle and uh, be challenged of what I do. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's great. Uh, all the the different uh, things that you're kind of contributing to to sharing knowledge and information across to all sorts of different things. So, um, you wanted to kind of start with uh, talking about domain driven design. You know, I think domain driven design for data uh, it's something that a lot a lot of people are stuck on. We've had some episodes on it, but I think more and more perspective on this is necessary because there's not enough (laughs) like kind of written content out there. I think there's like four or five pieces total about how do we do this. And it's such an important thing. And it's just something that, that people on the data side haven't really encountered. So if you're coming to data from having worked on the microservices side, people are like, why haven't we been doing domain-driven design, but people on the data side aren't really sure of of kind of where to to start. So, um, you know, where do you think is the most interesting path to kind of go down from a conversation standpoint? Is it getting started? Is it the intricacies? Is it the, you know, anti-patterns, like how to, how to keep yourself out of trouble? (laughs) Like what, what would you like to jump off on? Well, we can, we can start by the basics, right? And, 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 why the domain-driven design approach, uh, what Eric Evan wrote, how this can be applicable to 
anything that have bits and bytes, right? Everything that is controlled by or produced by software. Um, and I think that that you you touch an interesting area, right? Because the, if we go back to the roots of domain-driven design, uh, goes back to that small talk community, right? The, the same community where the Agile Manifesto pop out. So those folks were um, back then working with a programming language and then boom, extreme programming pops up. Uh, Rebecca goes after the heuristics gathering. Domain-driven design pops up. So it's one of those singularity moments in our industry, right? It's it's very interesting. And, and domain-driven design took time in our industry because there is no tool backing it up, right? Uh, first of all. And, and second, it's very context-dependent, which is a thing that fascinated me because in our industry... I have the feeling that we are looking to quick answers. How do I solve my problem through a tool, problem solve, let's move on. And the interesting thing in domain-driven design community is the idea that software development or, or software in general, it's a learning process. Working software is a side effect. And this is, this is the thinking that generally is not in our industry. And as you point out, I have the feeling that with the data space, because data emerge uh, uh, or, or the data capabilities or the data accessibility became ubiquitous, right? Uh, now folks are, are facing the same problems. And, 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 and domain-driven design has some interesting patterns and, and different levels out, out to handle it which is what I think that what Zamak, when she coined the data mesh term, she got inspiration from. Okay, we, we today, we, we can handle and produce data way faster, right? So cloud really make it cheap because back in the day, you need a huge infrastructure and huge pockets to play with data. Uh, and today is pretty cheap, right? Pick up $100 and you have your TensorFlow running somewhere and you are doing something cool with uh, public data, which there is a lot of public data, right? Um, but when we move this to enterprises, we need boundaries, right? And this is what is domain-driven design about. We reason about where boundaries are, what can you expect from me? What can I expect from you? And what is our contract, right? So what is our interface? How do we communicate? Um, and then inside of our boundaries, inside of our uh, domains, inside of our bounded context, then is when we can try to solve the problems. This conversation is extremely hard to have, right? Because once again, folks are looking for quick solutions and discussing these boundaries is extremely, extremely hard. There is not a playbook. There are lots of heuristics. And every context matters. You know, when we set up bounded context, there are 101 reasons how to do them, right? It can be simply based on software uh, uh, and, and types of work that a company do. It can be because your company now is growing and you have different geographical regions. Right, so uh, um, the 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 regulations are different. 
right? So uh, you just set a bounded context around this because you 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 can uh, uh, extract value from that. It can be even cultural, right? You can even put bounded context because you are in US, and uh, although the culture is similar to Europe, there are differences. And then if we continue to move to Asia, culturally, just different, right? That, that in Africa, things are different. You might want to set up boundaries also around this cultural aspect, right? It depends what primes your organization. And domain-driven design gives us a set of patterns, uh, the original book, and then community uh, develop more visualization methods. The reason about that, there is no right and wrong. It's about how pragmatic can we be, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think Danilo Sato in, in his episode of talking about this had talked about um, there is no uh, done, there is no right, there is good enough for now, or there is good, and there is okay, and then you move forward. There, there was there was one thing that, uh, or a couple of things that I really wanted to, to hit on in what you said, which one was that um, around data that it's... DDD is good for everything controlled by software. And historically, data hasn't really been controlled by software. It's been controlled by tooling, right? And so in data mesh, we think about data as a product, data as a product to create a software product, right? Like you're controlling your data via via software. So I thought that was a really interesting kind of little um touch point that you said there because it's it's important to really rethink the way that we're we're creating data and so that's uh i thought that was really good um and then you know the whole thing of, of people wanting to solve quickly is is just again it's that people want to see you know kind of to to be a little derivative of monkey see monkey do of, Oh, this other company did it this way. So let's copy exactly what they did. And it's like, well, your context has no sense there. Um, and so I, I think, you know, but the, the one that really, really struck me as well was developing software is a learning process and the working software is just like an outcome, a consequence. I think that approach is, is very, very different. Um, so is like, I, I think just trying to get people into that culture, how do you think about letting people let go of focusing too much on that outcome and that we're trying to learn about what we're actually <laughs> dealing with and that we'll create much better software if we're not trying to solve to the tickets versus learn about the challenges and then tackle those challenges? Like, how have you found putting those conversations out when people are measuring their KPIs on, you know, not exactly lines of code, but often number of tickets and things like that? It's a very interesting question uh, that you are putting forward, right? Uh, I think that the roots and what I found with my work, because uh, I work with C-level, right? That is a very manufacturing-oriented thinking in software, right? Because uh, after the uh, industrial revolution, everything was about being efficient, right? The watt machine and the diesel machine and all of that. 
and then you know the the uh, lean movement started with Toyota in the sixties that had a different approach to quality. But we, when it comes to the software, we had same uh, ideas. But here is the thing: we our industry is pretty new, so we are still <laughs> settling on what our industry means. What we already learned is that treating software as a, a production line, like we produce a car, it's different. And it's different because software has a very interesting quality. It's very easy once it it, it is in production, right? Because uh, uh, the, 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 the microphones or the cameras that we are using to record this podcast, they are in production. And if we want to change them in production, it's a very expensive process. We need to destroy them and start over or, or right? All of these type of things. Which leads to the culture because what I'm being found is that leaders in companies and people in power have these, they, they reduce the thinking about software and they, they, they deeply forget that we just create software and the data that also is in, I consider that is in the same space to solve complex problems. Because if the, the, the problem is simple, creating software and, and manage data, it's pretty expensive. I see, I start to see a shift uh, uh, in our industry in the recent years because people really start to understand that they need to release control. This is not about, you know, telling you what you need to do. If we hire very intelligent people, you know, data analysts, data scientists, software engineers, platform engineers, you know, product managers, they will figure out how to solve those problems or, or trying to create solutions that will try to solve those problems. If not, that problem was already solved. It was easy, right? And I, I feel that finally companies understand what they need for business agility. And that requires this space that doesn't matter the number of tickets that you solve or not, because you can change two or three lines in production and be 10 times more profitable as a company because you solve you know, a problem or you just discover how to extract or generate some insight from the data that you have that allows you to create a new business line, right? You just discover something in behavior of your consumers that allows you to spin up a, a new product, right? And, and is this discovery uh, process that needs to be embedded in the organizations which again matches with boundaries and matches with domain-driven design. Because if you have areas in your company that are more stable, okay, you put boundaries there and there are other areas that are more unstable where you want more ideas and innovations and, and things that born and die because, I don't know, was an idea ahead of time. This type of culture, at least here in Europe where I am, I start to, to to see the companies. It's still a struggle for companies to change, right? Because people are uh, afraid of releasing control. Uh, but also as a, a community, the people that create software and maintain software, doesn't matter what is our title or area that we handle. I see that we are more critical and we speak up what we want, right? Uh, which is creating an interesting movement to change our own workplaces. Yeah, I, I think the what you talked about there of the incremental value creation chain, it's it's so interesting because 
you know, when you do think about the the cost of that incremental value can be extremely low if you can discover it, right? So you have to, exactly as you said, you have to set yourself up to be able to discover the, those incremental value opportunities rather than just trying to generate, 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 because then you become a feature factory, uh, you know, or, or whatever you want to talk about with that, that if you're not focused on what is actually happening, what is actually occurring, you're going to be missing out on so much. So you have to give people the space and, and the time and set them up so that you can not just say, I know what this what, what our people want and we're just going to put it in front of them versus, hey, is what we're doing effective? Like that that measurement is where the strong leverage in software comes, right? The strong value leverage. It's not necessary. I mean, you might have a home run with a new feature or a new product line or whatever in, in the software side, but it's just as likely and, and probably much less effort to set yourself up um, to make incremental changes, small incremental changes that that really leverage those those value opportunities that are out there is that is that kind of what you're saying exactly exactly is these once again uh, um, this is a very interesting quote from Kent Beck right the the uh, DDD Europe on 2020 to, right before the pandemic broke here in Amsterdam he said that once software arrives to production changes itself. Because people just find new ways of using that piece of software, which is true, right? Uh, uh, every time that we put something out, people just find a new way of using it. And I see an extreme acceleration since the cloud uh, became the, the, the norm, the mainstream. And companies cannot just plan in the next one to three years. Things just happen, and as agile and fast that you can be to learn and to have these incremental changes, it increases the likelihood of your success as a company. Um, and there are lots of examples uh, like that, right? Why Netflix doesn't lose their position because they do thousands and thousands of small changes every day. It's very hard to copy their product because their product is always changing, right? And I see, and I see the same opportunities in the data mesh or or with data mesh approach, the same opportunities to leverage data that uh, companies have, right? Because uh, it's there. Uh, we don't know all the questions. <laughs> we simply don't. How can we unlock this power? Right? How can we organize ourselves rather to, to think, because we already put those terms in the table, rather than we try to be efficient, uh, try to, uh, uh, rather than to, to be efficient, try to be effective. Right? One of the questions that I ask usually ask my, question, uh, my clients when I start, it's how many features do you delete? How many lines of code? And some of them look to me like, I said, you know, I'm out of this planet. You know, I'm 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 a different creature. Uh, 
Now you're taking features out of a product. Exactly. Do you know what uh, the people that use your product like, don't like, you know? Because if not, it's like you have a very heavy rock and you are trying to drag it in a beach, in the sand. Uh, and I think that relates to what you are saying, these costs of opportunity, because to take these opportunities, what is in your backpack that you will leave to continue your journey? Yeah, Once again, learning. It's, it's what, what are your, if you're, if you're constantly driving forward towards, this is what I want to do. This is what I'm going to do. And then um, you're not kind of stopping to look around you and say, what you know okay we've we've got to just keep driving towards our goal try towards our goal instead of like what more could we be doing with the stuff that we've already done or what is the stuff that's weighing us down like what what is weighing us down and especially you know putting things into production there's a cost to keeping things in production so if something's not effective why keep it in production i don't think we have that concept at all in most places on data. Once something is in production, consumers say you can never change it, you can never stop it because they're they're tired of, of things changing and breaking on them. So they just go, once you've put it into production, it's in production. But if we can flip that conversation as well and say, data consumers, we're gonna evolve this, but we're gonna have this be controlled evolution, not just <laughs> complete and utter chaos and breakages for you that what i'm finding from from people who are going down these paths they're they're finding that that people are really data consumers are really okay with it they're really not okay in that first conversation but they are once you start to to head down that path right like once you start to say hey we are going to do versioning we're going to let you know when these changes are coming we're going to work with you. So this report you've been consuming, it's going to have to change because we are doing versioning, but we're going to help you to, to move over to the next one. Or we're also going to let you know that new data has come out that might be useful to you. So it's not simply that uh, you know it's there or it's not. It's, hey, we're evolving this thing. We're making it better. We're, we're exactly what you talked about with kind of the software side. We're looking for more places where we can make what we're serving to our, our consumers better. And so like, let's have those conversations. Let's figure that out. It's, it's interesting tying that into DDD. How, how do you think about tying that into that DDD of how that communication interface between teams changes? Like, how do you have those conversations? Uh, great question, right? So um, it's about being really explicit and have intentionality. Uh, I tell this a lot to, to, to C-level, you need to be intentional. Yeah, but we are agile and we allow autonomy. And then I start my, my, my ranting about anarchy because if you are not intentional, you don't have autonomy. People just do random stuff with no direction and suddenly you have anarchy, right? Uh, uh, um, DDD... So DDD, the patterns of DDD are split in two major groups. Tactical patterns that uh, uh, Eric uh, distilled them for software creation and what he calls strategic patterns. How can we reason about these boundaries and now can we talk about our dependencies, right? 
having this explicit conversation is very important. So I'm going to give you a, an example, and I'm going to use the, the terminology, so sorry for the audience, I don't want to annihilate you, but there are also the resources, there are the Orange Book from Eric Evans, where all of these definitions are, and it's open source, so we can refer to this later. Let's imagine the following situation. A company, you know, start developing for some reason their own CRM, right? And then you have teams producing data products and other parts of software that depending there. So let's imagine that we have two bounded contexts, right? One for CRM and one for a random product, right? Because both of them are managed inside of the company, you have two different teams. And the relationships between the teams is a upstream downstream. So the the the, uh, the team that manages the the CRM bounded uh, uh, context is upstream. The other one is downstream. But that relationship can be of different types. You can have a, a, a consumer and supplier type of relationship. So the upstream is the supplier. Then you have the consumer. So the consumer has lots of influence on the supplier. Pretty much, you know, you want to release a new features or adding new uh, uh, stuff to the bounded context. Consumer has a lot to say. So there are more patterns like these in the language, but this is just to give an example. As things evolve, you know, one thing that popped out in our the industry was Salesforce <laughs> to solve this problem of CRM, right? Is is the leading CRM platform, SaaS. So companies <laughs> stop developing their own CRM. They just adopt this SaaS solution. So now imagine for this company that they do the same. They keep having a bounded context that is a CRM, continues to be upstream, but first of all, they don't need a team to maintain it, just need an integration point, well-documented over an integration technology, synchronous or asynchronous, doesn't matter. But what changes is now you don't have a consumer-supplier type of relationship. Because the upstream is so big that we'll push things on your direction, which means that if you are downstream, you might need, you know, uh, 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 anti-corruption layers. That is a pattern to protect, or you might want to be conformist. Okay, whatever they they say and do, we will just obey to this. Reasoning about these patterns, and now imagine that this example goes throughout a company with 20, 30, 100 teams, right? We still have these dependencies. Mapping out these dependencies, having a conversation what can change as the, the software evolves, as the data product evolves, it's crucial. And the tools exist. In this case, the, the context map as a visualization tool exists. And it's about reason about uh, these relationships and what can change based on the needs that uh, different teams have. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think... It's a challenge that a lot of people are really, I, I think there is a lot of, um, of resources out there, but it is difficult to take what, what has been done on the DDD side and apply it to data, but it's also kind of not difficult, right? Like, it's like, okay, if we really, really think through a lot of this stuff, it's not as, it's not that different, Right. And we just have to, but the data folks, again, just haven't really 
been thinking about things from this angle. And so it's, it's been very, very, very difficult. Um, and, and kind of going back again to that uh, efficient versus effective, it's not, it's, it's more efficient for a team to just put out an interface and say, use it, but it's not effective, right? Exactly. It's conversations. It's the conversations that, uh, the number of times that, that, um, the solution in data mesh is, conversations is have conversations with each other is so high. It is. And this is the stuff, right? Today, um, and I keep just calling software, so it also includes data and data products, right? We are, most of our time, 80%, around 80% of our time, bashing our keyboards, trying to create stuff and 20% of our time designing. What if we invert this percentage, right? Less lines of code that do things and more intentionality in our designs. And and I'm going to say a thing that, let's see if uh, <laughs> how the data mesh community react or, or the data community react. I have the feeling from what I observe that the data space is where DevOps was in the beginning. So they are going throughout the same journey again, right? Because DevOps was about, okay, let's bring these, break these cycle, uh, uh, silos between uh, devs and ops. Uh, and then a lot of patterns and a body of knowledge was built, right? What works, what doesn't work, uh, what works if you are a small company, a big company, right? And I have the feeling that we are on the same path with the data space. We, okay, we have warehouses, we move to data lakes because it was a nice solution. Now, okay, this is too expensive and we are creating this huge dependency that is slowing down the company. And now we are evolving to the data mesh thinking, right? Uh, to how can people uh, uh, produce, have data products, we have data consumers, it's meaningful but we don't have gigantic platforms that everyone needs to use, which slows down everyone and we don't get business agility. I have the feeling that we are building this uh, um, uh, body of knowledge, right? Because we can be inspired and, and, and learn what happened with the community, with software in first instance. We can learn what happened with the DevOps community Things will be slightly different um, with data, I'm afraid, because uh, all the regulations, right? The, the new GDPR yeah. will pop up now in Europe. Uh, the new deal between Europe and US is popping up again. So things shift quite fast in that space. But I feel that we can inspire on each other, right? And and, and go back to these basics, the boundaries, the, the efficiency versus effectiveness, and, and you talk about another one, versioning, right? This is a, a well-known technique from software industry or engineering practices, right? Versioning your APIs, you know, have semantic APIs. Uh, uh, don't break uh, Java as a programming language is well-known that they don't break their APIs, which causes problems to <laughs> have modern features in the language <laughs> itself. Uh, but they have these retro compatibility between the, 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 the versions of their their uh, API. So the pattern of versioning 
that's already known in engineering is is nothing new, right? That can be applied. Yeah, I think I think that exactly what you're talking about of what we've had in data again is that people have been sold that the um, the tooling will solve the challenge, and so we're really having to look at how to apply these um, processes and patterns and you know things like that that aren't tooling based and so it's frustrating a lot of the people in the data and and as you said kind of like there's going to be uh, this body of knowledge around how to do these different things for different sizes of company Data mesh, you know, if you talk to Jamak, if you listen to her, data mesh is not for startups. It is not for small companies, right? Data mesh is a big undertaking. But we can get to a place where um, smaller companies can share their data effectively, but it's not, it, it doesn't need the full self-service platform. It doesn't need the full, you know, ways of interoperability. Interoperability can be more point-to-point interoperability between, okay, you need interoperability between these two data sets. Let's make sure that we we work on creating that interoperability versus we need to have these, you know, bigger standards that everybody can conform to and that, you know, that that we have. So there's, there's a lot of overhead that we're, the interoperability between um, the different domains and the data products is more valuable at a larger organization because you have more of them. And so you need that kind of, you, that autonomy does create chaos in, in a larger uh, organization. Je- Jessatron or Jessica Kerr on her episode talked about, you know, developers don't want autonomy, they want agency. What they want is the, directionality, that intention of where do we go, and then the ability to say, this is how we're going to get there, versus you do what you want, and that there's not any kind of shared, you know, uh, you know goals where everybody's moving towards kind of a, a shared vision. That, that just creates frustration and chaos, and so you've got some people who are trying to reinvent the wheel, Versus like, hey, how do we make this so that there's less friction for folks to, to move forward and that there is a shared forward or a shared or there might be a few different forward directions, but that, that people are able to kind of go together. But as you talk about, spend that time where when you see things like that, you can explore those because those might be the big, but you, you might have created the potential massive value but it's not been the uh, it's not your main focus. So if you don't have time to explore it, you're going to miss out on these massive things that you've already set yourself up to much more easily create value rather than you know launching new software, launching new software because the the development process versus the iteration process, the the initial development is typically much more expensive. So it's a, it's a lot of po- good points that you've been making that kind of tie together. So I think you've got a, a complete vision in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, well, shameless plug. Uh, 
Jessica was on my podcast and actually we were discussing uh, the heuristic exactly about that, commit to their direction, not the path, right? What she called a quest that ties back to this. So uh, I imagine, well, Jessica is Jessica. Open book, <laughs> everyone uh, should learn from her because it's just amazing, just amazing. But that is the thing. You talk about the size, learning about the DevOps community. You touch also in uh, self-service platforms that are pretty expensive. That is exactly what now is emerging with DevOps community. Finally, we we are getting rid of the, the DevOps engineer title. To just but the, my back hair just goes up, and we start to call what it is platform engineers, right? So people that you know create and maintain these self-service platforms, which is an, a different engineering challenge than you know creating data products or creating software or whatever different disciplines we have in our industry. And exactly this conversation, I was in a conversation with Nick Tune a few months ago. When does pay off to a company to set up a platform rather than every team is responsible for the platform itself? So you are just a good citizen, just use the bare bones uh, services of a cloud provider, you know, apply security, but nothing is done centrally. When, you know, you have a size to have a platform, to have a little bit more standards and economies of scale kicks in. I have the feeling that is exactly the same discussion with the, the data space. At some point, you need a data platform because the economies of scale will pay off. The thing, especially with uh, these platforms, when we think about them for data mesh, they are more expensive, right? Because if we think about the three Vs of data, right? Volume, velocity, and variety, not have, not all companies will uh, achieve this, right? I was... <laughs> with a company that operated in Belgium here in Europe and they were talking about all the data that they need and stuff like that. And I told them, yeah, you might have volume because you operate for 25 years, so you harvest lots of data. You don't have variety nor velocity because it's just two or three systems that you have and that's it. You, you are not properly Google or Microsoft or Amazon that are global companies. Right, it's 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 uh, not operating lots of countries, and 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 these are the discussions to have, not just because it's a cool uh, buzzword. Three years ago, everyone wants AI. Uh, everyone in the industry, every CTO and CIO wants to have AI, and all the products are AI something. Uh, when well, but what are you going to do with AI? You know what what do you want to provide to your consumers what you know before going down this path that is very expensive right is not easy so we, those are are the things that I give out uh, to learn from each other to 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 share more to talk discuss these boundaries trade-offs uh, and think about this because there is um, if we go together I have the feeling that um, we can even unlock more power to society in general, right? Better products uh, to all of us uh, uh, to improve our lives. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. And and yeah, um, exactly what you talked about as well of the 
not what's the return of creating a data platform. What's the return on investment? Because there's an investment. And so you have to think about how much is this going to cost in terms of time and money and everything else. And so that those economies of scale, there are there are companies that aren't large enough that need to be building these these platforms. And so, you know, um, there I haven't seen anything that's that's really a, a very good uh, self serve platform or even large chunks of a self serve platform for for data mesh. There are plenty of people out there claiming to be, but um, that you know. A lot of, you know, Jamak and Sina Jahan had done um, a webinar as well where they were talking about what they built for a, a lot of their customers, uh, ThoughtWorks, and the number of times they said, and we rolled our own, and we rolled our own, and we rolled our own, was, it was like for 40 or 50% of the the things that they were looking at. So uh, really, if you're if you're a small company, trying to go down the data mesh route versus taking what data mesh is talking about and, and applying some of the principles, right? Like, that's great. That's what we should all be looking to do. And we should all be looking to learn. But you don't need a full self-service platform if you're a 100-person company, <laughs> right? Like, Flexport, when uh, Abi Siv Asylum was on the uh, podcast, he talked about we, we just, we didn't give them a whole bunch of options. We just have DBT and Snowflake. And so we don't need anything more than that. Uh, or, or if we really do, then we'll do kind of special one-offy type things. And so I, I think exactly what you're talking about of that kind of pragmatism of what are we actually trying to accomplish and what is this going to get us if we do it? Like really think about that rather than what's cool. But you, you can't say that to technologists. <laughs> <laughs> you can't, you can't. I recently deal, dealt with a customer um, in Asia and um, they also have global services so a product used globally but they have uh, a problem so uh, their disaster recovery site and we are now talking about the basics right uh, they use cloud providers a second cloud provider because it's financial services their disaster recovery website they use Spinnaker as a CI/CD tool and the primary Jenkins and then uh, uh, their main resource was virtual machines in primary and they were trying to use containers and I was like why why a basic thing that is if you have a disaster you want to recover right why are you using all of this technology yeah because with disaster recovery we are playing to the next tools and then we apply to the other one but okay but you are defeating the purpose that it's just a mirror, exactly the same tools and, 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 and workloads. Because when there is a disaster, <laughs> you're going to have the bosses of your CEO calling down. So you don't want to learn with the quirks of different technologies. You just want something to work. And, and these are the, the principles that you are referring to. Let's just think about the principles. The reason why, you know, the principles of data mesh can help us. Do we have boundaries in place? Do we really understand our boundaries? Are they shifting? What is our data governance process? What are the regulations? How are we going to handle this? Do we want more autonomy to the teams or less autonomy? Right? What can we give or what can we not give? 
I, I was working back in the, the, the time when GDPR came out to, in an e-commerce company. You know, GDPR comes out. We need to start implementing it. And it was very easy. What are the teams that touch and own data that belongs to customers? 10% of the teams, okay, they need help. The other teams proceed as usual, right? And now no one has access and there are special controls about uh, around customer data, you know? Just don't make everything too difficult, right? Just be pragmatic. Um, we will get there as a industry as a whole to have more of this pragmatism rather than the latest shiny tool that uh, the big tech uses or produces. And, and that's kind of data mesh has been such a, a rejection of that. And yet people are still like looking at it with that same view of, oh, we need to be doing data mesh. We need to be doing data mesh. And it's like, well, do you? Why? Like, well, what are you actually trying to accomplish? Like the number of times I've told people you shouldn't be doing data mesh for somebody who, who you know, is kind of billed as a data mesh evangelist. I'm more of an advocate and I'm more of an advocate for what what are you actually trying to accomplish? What's going to be good for you? If that's data mesh, awesome. I want to connect you to the resources to help you do that. If it's not, also awesome. I want to connect you to some resources to help you do what you need to do. But like, don't take on, don't, don't try and do data mesh for the sake of doing data mesh, right? Just because it's cool or it sounds interesting or anything like that. And the, the number of times people are like, well, stop gatekeeping. You know, why are you telling people they shouldn't do it? It's like, because they shouldn't. Like, <laughs> I don't want people to take on challenges for the sake of taking on challenges. It can be fun. It can be interesting, but it's, it's not efficient, right? Or it's not, it's not effective. It's not, it's, it's kind of neither, but it's not effective. It's not what you're trying to actually accomplish, right? Like it's not going to help you. What is the business problem that you are solved? It was exactly the same discussion five years ago or three years ago when uh, microservices done wrong start to emerge, right? Oh, everyone has microservices and now we need release orchestration and it's like, cool. So you defeat the pro purpose of having your microservices. It's exactly this type of conversation, the hype jumping on the bandwagon especially with data mesh, basic question, can you create a sustainable data product? Do you know the boundaries? Can you apply proper engineering principles? Okay, are you ticking all of those boxes? Okay, now move to your second data product. <laughs> Just, you know, and, and I believe that things, uh, and this is the, the uh, uh, your term, control evolution is exactly this point. Rather than embrace this old new world, you know, that is amazing, what can be done today so that the company unlocks the potential so in three years, five years, 10 years, one year, maybe the company is using data mesh, you know? Brilliant idea that took the market and now it's a global company with five different business lines and, okay, now we really need data mesh. We are working with a company here in Netherlands. So they, 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 they lease in the automotive industry. So they lease since e-bikes, they lease cars, 
and they, they have different brand, uh, brands, and but they also lease uh, heavy construction equipment, right? So that has more IoT involved. Uh, so it's a distributed organization, different CIOs, a central organization. And what we are helping them to do is the rules of the game. Just, okay, centrally, we just have data governance. Um, we're going to set up some tools. So for the 80% of their businesses, they are just on board and they can extract the value of the data. And then 20% of the businesses, okay, they really need to set up their own part because they are unique inside of their uh, of their uh, uh, group, right? And we are saying this to the folks that uh, uh, lease the, the construction machines because, you know, uh, maintenance and all of that stuff, it's, it's heavy because, you know, heavy machinery uh, versus all the different brands of cars, but leasing cars, it's easy, especially here in Netherlands that we have amazing roads. So maintenance in cars, it's really straightforward. <laughs> And this is the thinking, right? And this is what we told them. Yes, you need somehow because you are we are bounded to GDPR. You need to have strong rules everywhere because you know addresses of people and all of this type of stuff. And then you have your uh, things that you can really leverage data products to manage the the, the, the life cycle of maintenance these 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 machines. And uh, when can you do proactive maintenance because it's machines that cost millions. Um, and it's a, an example, how can we apply this thinking? I don't believe that the company or is not on plans of the company to go outside of the Netherlands, but could become interesting if they decide for world domination, right? And apply their business model throughout the world. And then, then okay, that may start to make sense. Regulations in different countries uh, just will require that. Therefore, we have different boundaries. Or just even that that maintenance idea that there's a data product around. Here's what we see. Here's our our proactive maintenance schedule, and they can they can start to share that with other people that are using the same equipment, or they can create kind of a data e- ecosystem. Yarko um, uh, uh, Milan in uh, his episode, it, it's not out at, at time of, of us chatting, but it's going to be out relatively soon. And he was kind of talking about data ecosystems and that, you know, are you using it only for yourself or can you create these kind of shared ecosystems or, or could you package that up and sell that out if you really are figuring out, okay, here is here's how wear and tear affects it and so how can we do this proactive maintenance that could be super super valuable and if you're already using it internally and it doesn't take much effort to package it up and sell it externally that could be really useful or you can start to um you know get some reduction in your in your pricing or your costs or whatever if you start to share that data back to the um the companies that create the the equipment itself and that you say hey here's what we're doing here's like let's schedule out our proactive maintenance and that we're we're scheduling this out way in advance so it's not um it's not kind of last minute and then we're going to work with you so that you get all of the data flow about what's going on and it, there's just lots of those little things that once you've you've once you've set yourself up for success, you can find those those incremental points and you can test those, right? It might be that nobody wants to buy that data. It might be that the company's like, no, we already know when this stuff, we've got IoT on all of our equipment anyway. So like we're, we're already good. So it, it could be, but like there's, there's though it opens up so many more doors. 
Exactly. And and these um that's why I observe and now I'm gonna throw out the very expensive term, the, the hyper objects or data as an hyper object. Because what you are mentioning, it might be two and a half years ago, too expensive to go down that route. Why do we want to invest so, so much in uh, maintenance, right? Or proactive maintenance, right? There is a warehouse full of parts. You know, it's broken. We have, you know, we don't work for two hours. Some mechanical engineer goes there and get back, right? And then install the new part. <laughs> After COVID and now the war in Ukraine, so the supply chains are all messed up. I was reading another day that the, the Ford uh, uh, plant in Michigan in the US is stopping because there are no CPUs, right? There is a shortage of CPUs. This is where <laughs> proactive maintenance plays a role, right? Because can uh, 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 now decreases your, um, your downtime, right? Because if you plan, you can access to the resources in a way more controlling uh, uh, way. And this is exactly what you were describing for the example that I gave. Things that in the past, you know, you couldn't justify the return on investment. You might only do it because it's cool. That today justifies. Connects to the boundaries, once again, connects to agility. But this also gives the next layer, and this is how we connected on Twitter, right? Because I was in Zamak um, workshop two months ago, and she said that we something around these lines. So uh, please, she forgives me if I <laughs> misquote her, but was something around these lines. We store data to answer. We store data today to answer the questions that we have tomorrow. And this is an hyper object by definition. So I came into contact to this hyper object term that was a, a social ecologist, a philosopher called uh, Timothy Morton, and he was studying um, uh, global warming, right? So if we think about the El Nino um, uh, effect or the El Nino event, it's an event that uh, occurs in a cadence of years and has an effect of two or three years, right? So although occurs in the Pacific region, I think, the Atlantic Ocean, the fish on Atlantic Ocean goes north and south, which is massive, right? And either find it an hyper object as an object that spans space and time. Well, when we hear about this, we start to see hyper objects everywhere. So data is an hyper object. We, we store data. Let's be very mindful the data that we store. I'm reading a book called Design for Safety that talks about that. Don't just store data for the sake of uh, storing data because then can be weaponized and then we have problems. But the whole idea also of these data products is that tomorrow you have a question or, or you, you know an event happens that you need to change your business. And you have this data to answer to these questions or to figure out these patterns in your business or behaviors, right? And that's why I'm really passionate now about these hyper objects because software and everything around software and data resembles with an hyper object. Because even this cell phone that I have with me, the process to manufacture it 
started a few years ago, extracting the materials. The, there is a logistical process and a supply process until it is in my end, right? And there is a life cycle. And this is the beauty of this. If we reason about this control evolution, we can keep evolving our data products. We can reason about return on investments. I know that this is a bit philosophical, but gets back to the beginning of our conversation. How to reason about boundaries, how to reason what is possible, how to just avoid bandwagons and, and hypes because just is fun, right? Like people tell you, be careful, don't gatekeep, right? But what matter for us? And this is an interesting property, getting back to hyperobjects and data. This is a very, very interesting property of data because what are the questions that we have tomorrow? We don't know, right? So the, the validity of this data expands in time, but also can expand in space. There is something in people behavior patterns that can be applied in different countries or different continents. I don't know. Maybe there is, maybe there isn't. Um, I think that is what social networks companies <laughs> figure out, right? Uh, but is this concept, which which I find amazing, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah, and we'll, we'll put links in the show notes to exactly what you're talking about of, of this, because it, it is something that's... Uh, I, I get that there's a lot of depth here, but my brain still just like, it, it's like, okay, is it, it's kind of like DDD for data for me, where it's like, well, this is really, really easy to understand, but it's not at all at the same point, right? Like, it's really easy to kind of get, it's it's one of those things where it's like um, e easy to do, but uh, lifetime to master or whatever, you know, like uh, one of those things of, of uh, like, uh, you know, just for example, like playing golf or whatever, it's pretty easy to go out and just hit a ball, but it's, it's very, very difficult to get very good at it. <laughs> and so, um, uh, yeah, it's, it's, um, this concept I think resonates and, and what we were talking about earlier, I think, I think when we think about how we deal with data, we've always kind of done this specific one-off use case right? And, and we need to think about how we do reuse because of exactly what you talked about of this, this data product that we've been doing, it, it in and of itself may be completely useless in six months, but we've evolved it, evolved it, evolved it. And it may be that part of it gets collapsed into another data product, or it may spawn another data product, or this data product may become incredibly important or whatever, and we're not sure. And we have to think about that it's the launch of the data product is just part of that evolutionary cycle of it, that it's not the end all be all, you know, it's kind of when, when it's this cliche that people talk about all the time with companies and going public and things is, you know, going, going public, getting, you know, listed on a public exchange. It's, not the end of something. It's just kind of another day. It's an exciting day, but, but it's another day in the life of the company. And so that launch of the data product, you, you've had the pre-work on it to make sure that it's it's good and things, but it's another day in the life and that, you know, you're going to continue to evolve it. It's going to continue to change. And so it does span that kind of time frame, and it, it can expand or it can contract. And so, you know, 
whether it's a physical object and you think about expanding in space and time, but you can think of that in the same way around your data. So I think that's that's interesting. I, I don't have a very pithy way of, of, of talking about it yet. Maybe uh, maybe you've got a couple of good phrases or we can ask uh, Jessatron because she, she typically has really, really uh, funny little phrases that are like, oh, okay, you just summed up everything in, in seven words. That definitely, definitely. I think that uh, she's the go-to person for uh, for this case because we also are in the same communities, right? Because this sums up complexity, right? We we talk during this episode that people take a reductionist approach, just take a tool to solve a problem. This is the thing with complexity, right? I'm a student of, of complexity and I think that I will always be during my life and this is what Dave Snow that came out with uh, the Knevin, right? So there are different domains within Knevin, but a very interesting one is the complex domain. And the complex domain is pretty much where we create our software for. It's where social problems and challenges are as well. Interesting thing with complex problems is that if you think uh, about the problem as a, an object or as an, as an entity, Every time that you interact with this problem, it changes itself. Yeah. <laughs> and this is exactly getting back to data and software. Every time that you expose this to consumers, data consumers, software consumers, whatever, you're going to find new uses for that. So the, the problem that the initial use case that you talk, it changes. And, and that is that what I try to, to illustrate to C-level. That's why this is not a manufacturing line. Because you put this data out, you put this software out, you're going to discover something new. It's evolution. Well, and, and that, you know, uh, Andrew Harmel Law, and with his episode with Danilo Sato, talked about you have to embrace that complexity. And I think I didn't really fully get it at this, that point, but I think what you're talking about is in manufacturing, you're driving out complexities because those complexities are costs. But when we think about complexity relative to software, those are opportunities. Those are value opportunities because it's complex for a reason. And if it's complex for if it's complex for no reason, yes, you want to chase them out. And so you do want to evaluate that. But if it's complex for a good reason, if there's a real there's potential value in that complexity. So how do you embrace that complexity rather than trying to reduce? reduce it, you know, be reductive about it and get rid of the complexity. Because if you chase out that complexity, especially when you think about consumer interactions, if you're chasing out the complexity, you're chasing away consumers that might be using your product in a new and innovative way that can open up new new value for you. So I, I don't know if that was what you were driving towards, but I think that that what kind of the way you were talking about it really made me realize that 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 embracing complexity isn't just like being okay with the complexity. It's like complexity can have value. Definitely. And 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 well I can imagine the conversation that you had with Andrew is <laughs> a very <laughs> especially with his uh anarchist architect. It's a very interesting concept, right? Mm -hmm. But it's about that. It's people, right? Exactly. Right, and, and and especially in Western world, the world that we are, 
I can tell you, hey, go do something. <laughs> you tell me, see you later, right? So it's it's like, right, we have our autonomy and agency. An organization just need to realize that. And we need to create our systems and putting our organizations, putting this structure and enable this agency for the agents that we have in the, the organization, for these teams in the organization to chase, chase the opportunity because they are facing the, the complexity. We want to remove proxies out of the way as much as we can, right? That's why, why we want cross-functional teams. Can you manage the software product or this data product in the best way and you be in co contact with your consumers to learn what they are doing and, and, and keep evolving? And this is the old thinking about that's why this cannot be manufacturing. We just don't line up all of these teams <laughs> and, and, and pass task to task because we know that that doesn't work because we are in these very complex systems. Because manufacturing, on the other side, if we pick up knaving, is on the complicated part, right? It's the, the other domain that is predictable. Yeah. A complicated problem, you know, you pick up a switch, Swiss watch, right? Apparently the best manufacturers or watches in the world. I don't understand anything about watches, but I pick up the engineering instructions and with patience I can disassemble and reassemble it. Right. It's complicated, but you know, it's parts and, and they... But when it comes to people, and this is the, 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 the very interesting thing, we, we have these um, most of our systems and data products are for decision uh, supporting decision systems, right? Is to is to tell a operator you might want to do something, right? And then we have other types of softwares that are controlling softwares, right? And even those controlling softwares are their counterparts to to keep the balance and checks. If we think about the, the Apollo shuttles and redundancy or nuclear power plant systems pacemaker systems, right, uh, that tries to do that. But the other software is, is or data products or the, the products in general is to the decision support. And this is the mindset how, how we organize and companies organize themselves to embrace complexity, to, to avoiding control the problem, right? I think that is very close to our nature, right? Our brain loves predictability. That's why it loves control. But yeah, it's, it's impossible. Let's just ride the flow, put our boundaries out, what do we like, what we don't like, where we want, we like to go, what is direction, and figure out the path together. So um, it's very interesting how this translates, how we organize our companies, uh, uh, and now we chase opportunities. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, this has been phenomenal. We're, we're <laughs> well over an hour. So um, I want to thank you so much for, for taking the, the time. We didn't quite get to as much about the kind of evolving on the socio-technical side as, as uh, we, we had maybe planned to. But, uh, you know, there's always next time. So <laughs> happy Definitely. To, to chat again. But um, so uh, we talked about a lot of things here. Where, if, if people want to follow up with you, where's the best place? You know, Twitter versus LinkedIn, and and what what do you want people following up with you specifically about? If they've got questions, if they've got answers, like 
what what would be a good uh, follow up conversation that people if if people wanted to follow up with you? Um, Twitter definitely. So um, uh, I think that uh, the folks can find the handler uh, in description of the episode. Yes, it's uh, easier one. Just anything answers questions. Just engage, right? I'm. Uh, um, it's easier to to find me there and uh, to trigger it. Uh, because I love a good conversation like this. I'm pretty unstructured. <laughs> I go <laughs> everywhere. Uh, definitely up to, to a second episode to talk about the evolution of socio-technical systems. But uh, hit me on, uh, on, uh, on Twitter. Awesome. Well, um, Joao, again, thank you so much for uh, spending the time with me today. And uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. Thanks for the opportunity. I'd again like to thank my guest today, Joao Rosa who's a principal consultant at Xebia. Uh, As per usual, you can find his contact information and other relevant links in the show notes. Thank you. Hopefully that interview episode was really useful for you. Please do consider getting in touch with guests from the show, from these episodes. Most have said they'd really love people to reach out to them. And please, as well, if you've got a minute, rate and review the podcast somewhere. It really is honestly super helpful for other people looking into kind of data podcasts to kind of get this in front of them. Data Mesh Radio is again provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It's produced and hosted by me, Scott Herleman. In April of 2023, I left Data Stacks, who were wonderful in getting the Data Mesh community stuff started, so give them a shout for streaming and real-time AI needs. But I left to start my own industry analyst kind of information-as-a-service firm. Our offerings are affordable and you can do them on a one-off or a month-to-month basis. You know, read kind of, throw it on the credit card. Don't worry about like going through purchasing and things like that. The services include lots of practitioner roundtables, you know, one-on-one data mesh kind of planning or feedback sessions and tailored introductions to other data mesh practitioners that are focused around your topics of interest. You know, what, what are you actually running into challenges with? We also have some free programs around introductions and roundtables that people can kind of check out as well. Check the show notes or just go to datameshunderstanding.com for more info or helpful resources. As always, if you have suggestions for guests or topics, please do get in touch as well. And have a wonderful rest of your day. Now let's hear that funky outro music.